0: Writing is such an important part of day-to-day life that we take it somewhat for granted. Literacy is linked with intelligence. Language is linked with letters. But that's not quite accurate. Writing is a technology that is one way we can record language, but it isn't everything. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And today we are going to you know, tackle a nice, neat, small, compact, easy to follow topic. Uh, I want to talk about writing today, which is um, wildly broad and oh, overambitious. And I I think I just wanted to say on the outset that this is by no means meant to be comprehensive in any way. I just more want to have a chat about it. It's been a Long month or so and uh yeah you seemed like a a really good person to have this chat with this is the kind of thing that you and i would talk about on our free time so um yeah i I think this is going to be a a lot of fun actually
1: definitely it's uh certainly pretty open open open-ended
0: so specifically the things that i want to talk about um to at least narrow the scope a tiny bit are kind of two ideas i'd like to keep uh, i'd like both of us to keep in mind as we go through this number one is the relationship that the discipline of history has with writing, because it's one that I think about quite a bit, especially when I'm, um, looking at, uh, topics that aren't like very strictly Western history. History is one of those disciplines where we have fairly set rules that on the face of them seem, you know, very logical and, uh, uh, for extremely good reasons. And, and uh, when you kind of get off the beaten path a little bit, maybe you don't work quite as well as you would hope. So that's one is the relationship between history and, and writing. Uh, and then the other one is this idea of writing as a technology, not a language. And the reason I want to talk about that is that, again, this is something that's that's really interesting to me. This idea that we don't like we tend to think of of writing especially in in the modern era as kind of inextricably linked with writing right like if you can't write like you kind of like link the idea of like literacy right if you can't read or write it's almost as though you are not entirely able to effectively communicate with other human beings and that's not right. actually like an effect or or, or a, a an accurate assessment of the situation right um, most of our communication is is verbal, uh, I would say up until very, very recently uh, as a species. And so I want to think about writing and, and writing adjacent things as a technological advancement that was made in history that has changed and shaped the way that uh, human societies work, that human relationships work, things like that. So those are some pretty big ideas, but those are kind of the themes that I'm looking for a little bit today. I guess the first thing I want to kind of touch on a little bit is that relationship between history and writing, specifically through the historical method, right? And the historical method is like a very specific way of evaluating sources when one is writing history, right? It's this idea of really preferring uh, primary sources, so preferring uh, accounts of people who witnessed uh, events. And the historical method tends to favor either physical evidence or written sources above basically anything else. To the point that I've made the comment on this show before that, like, basically anything before the invention of writing, we kind of don't really consider history. We kind of consider it prehistory. It's that important to the discipline. But even that is kind of worth examining to some extent. Because... I think uh, it, it's really interesting living in the time that we do. You can do a little bit of a, a thought experiment, especially you and I, the, the ages that we are. We can do a little bit of a thought experiment, and basically go, okay, well, what if we had arbitrarily set, you know, the beginnings of history, the be- beginnings of recordings that we evaluate as, you know, valid and accurate and uh, trustworthy as being like anything stored digitally, right? There is-, is, right. Think about that a little bit. Because there's a significant portion yeah. of our lives, and especially when you get into our parents, our grandparents, where it's kind of like somebody's basically just taken a big red line, slashed through it and gone, well, we're not counting this stuff. And that's a little bit scary, right? The,
1: the crazy thing is the culture of the people around and creating those records at the beginning of the digital age was so small and such a, a, a narrow subculture that it would be such a skewed vision into what our society was right in the first, you know, 10 years because it was all this the same small group of people making things. And that really puts early written history into an interesting light of what if this was just a group of nerds?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's exactly it. Um, you know, and, and, and I think it's, it's maybe a, when when you put it that way, it's maybe a better analogy than I was really considering. Honestly, I was thinking of it in, in terms of like this this line based on a technology, you know, basically saying that an entire uh, uh, chunk of our lives and, and people that we know, uh, you know, not counting in a certain way, right? Anything that you hadn't put down right. digitally, not counting. But you're right in that, you know, the smaller the culture producing the amount of work involved, uh, the more skewed the perspective is going to be. And that's extremely true of written records because for a lot of this history, we're going to be talking about literally, sorry, uh, literacy is extremely low and it's extremely restricted. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's kept low by the technological barriers, but also by societal barriers. And what you get out of it is a fairly narrow, uh, view of people's lives. Yeah. So I think this leads us into a really good uh, question, which is one that's put forward by a discipline known as the philosophy of history, which is what is history for and who is history for? And these are not necessarily rhetorical questions. These are questions that have answers that have changed over time the modern conception of history is very much an idea of you know focusing on collecting facts and coming to a a sort of standardized understanding with the sort of end goal of better understanding the past potentially even understanding better where we're headed based on historical trends but when history starts you know, that's that's not really what somebody like, for example, Herodotus is looking to do, right? When a lot of people hold him up as sort of the first uh, historian, but his stuff is bad. Like, it's not accurate. The only thing that's really uh, interesting about his method is his focus on um, collecting sources, like saying where he got the information from. The information is still crazy.
1: Was he like a, a bridge between storytelling as a, no, maybe not profession, but as a vocation.
0: Yeah. And I think that's fair. Um, but I mean, at the same time, you've got Herodotus basically inventing speeches, whole cloth, uh, for historical figures. So he'll, he'll be writing and he'll say, you know, there's this battle coming up during the Persian war. And then Xerxes steps forward and he gave this speech and he'll like write down several, uh, paragraphs of a speech that he's made up whole cloth for Xerxes. And the reason he's
1: he's a a historical fanfic writer oh no
0: (laughs) yeah that's that's one way to put it the reason he's doing this is that in his estimation and in the estimation of most people doing what we could call history at that point in time the purpose of history is to serve as an example to people for how to be better people for how to live better lives and so you just straight up won't write a history about somebody who's bad or did bad things When you move into the classical period or into the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, a lot of history is uh, largely hagiographies, which is essentially it's talking somebody up, putting them in the best light possible, sometimes constructing things about them. Often if we're talking about political leaders, you're being paid by them or their families to write this history, and so you have a vested interest in making them sound very, very good. This also isn't like... Consistent with our current understanding of history, right? Basically, you don't get something resembling the modern historical method until the 14th century in uh, the Middle East where you get Ibn Khaldun who basically tries to marry the scientific method with collecting historical fact. And that's where you get things like evaluating the potential veracity of historical sources. That's where you get uh, an attempt to kind of when when sources disagree to evaluate the quality of them things like that that's only within the last 600 years or so that we've been doing that
1: um, how old were the sources that, that that writer would have been doing analysis on
0: well and i mean that's the trouble i mean we're, we're talking you know the the golden age of Islam, right? Like this is, you know, in among like scientific, mathematic uh, advances and he's trying to apply the same properties. But yeah, he's looking at these old sources and frequently commenting on them saying like, this is just a bunch of myth and legend. Like this isn't really uh, useful or accurate stuff and not necessarily having the tools to pull what, uh, you know, what might be true out of something that is largely clearly uh, made up. I bring all of this stuff up because we have this idea that like things written down are good history, and anything coming in another form is bad history. There's very much a dichotomy in the discipline of written versus unwritten, and that gets tied to other value judgments. One of the most I suppose damaging ones being uh, civilized versus uncivilized, right? Uh, modern mm. versus ancient, things like that, and and it causes real problems within history as a discipline because you know we, we're getting into a discipline of philosophy, which is a subject that I am fascinated in. Uh, I'm fascinated with up to like a first year level. Like I don't really want to get any deeper than that into it but like some of the core concepts, I'm like, ooh, this is really good. Um, There's a discipline within philosophy called epistemology, which is basically how do we, it's the philosophy of knowledge. It's how do we know the facts are true. It's how do we come to uh, a standard agreement on the veracity of the world around us. And there's a lot of weight put on the written word, especially the uncontradicted written word, within history. If it's written down, it's probably true. And now that's not to say that all historians are taking everything written down at face value all the time. There's absolutely analysis. That's a, a significant portion of what learning about history is, right? And some of it is self-evident. Uh, one, one example I saw is that like if you see an inscription in Rome that says, uh, you know, Claudius built this Colosseum you know that like the emperor didn't actually do that like we we know that we understand that there's like extra stuff to language that there's implications here that he's likely paid for a lot of it but at the same time we can infer from that 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 colosseum was built during the reign of claudius so like there is good information to be gleaned there even though the the inscription itself isn't 100% accurate and yeah. we're making value judgments like that all the time but the problem is that when we go back before basically the Enlightenment, and even then we're, we're talking about very questionable stuff. Our sourcing, when it comes to the written word, becomes less and less uh, reliable and creates more and more confusion and more and more work for people working on history to analyze and uh, sift fact from fiction. Yeah. And, you know, doing this show for seven years now, actually, by the way, I started in June, seven years ago. Um, Oh, wow. I spend a lot of time reading things that it's kind of like, you know, when you read about a battle, for example, you'll read an account from the winning side and it'll say, you know, they'll say, oh, the, the troop numbers are, are massively inflated to make uh, the winning side look better. Like they, they did better in the battle. And then you'll you'll read it from the losing side and they'll say, oh, the numbers are massively inflated to make it look like the the, the defeat wasn't so bad because, you know, if they were, you know, matched one to one, they would have been fine, but they were just massively outnumbered. And you kind of go like, well, right. we're all just taking guesses at numbers that we know aren't right, but we have no idea what are what they actually are, and we're trying to guess at motivations behind the the authors, and man, it, it gets it gets a little bit hairy, right? And and I, I very, very often I'm quoting those numbers to this podcast. And it's kind of like, well, I don't always know how I feel about that necessarily. So I don't know, maybe this is a little bit more of a meta episode in that regard but it's it's something that i think is really interesting to think about in terms of that relationship between the written word and history and how much we're actually um it, this isn't to cast doubt on everything that's ever been written down um it's it's maybe just to knock it off its pedestal a little bit in terms of its uh unimpeachability as a source if that makes more sense
1: Well, i i think recent history has shown us that if, if nothing else the written word is anything but unimpeachable
0: yeah i I think that's (laughs) ironically i think that's i think that's completely fair you know there's there's also all sorts of other stuff we have complicated relationships with our ideas of past people right i can't remember where i was reading it but i heard somebody talking about like man we, we really need to stop you know just assuming that every ancient person believed in you know, for example, Greek myths, uh, literally. So you know, they thought that there was like a literal Minotaur in the in the maze, right? And they kind of went like, you know, the people know what fiction is, right? Like, what if somebody yeah. two thousand years ago went, yeah, like everybody in twenty twenty thought that Iron Man and Thor saved New York from an alien invasion? <laughs> and I went, oh,
1: I I was relieved when they did. That was scary. <laughs>
0: I, I kind of went, yeah, no. I I guess I guess, that, I guess that is fair actually. We we shouldn't assume, I don't know. We're, we're we're so much more like people in ancient times than than we're dislike them that that stuff like that. I, I think we create a lot more distance than we need to. But anyways, um let's let's talk about the technology side of writing for a little bit cuz I think I'm I'm starting to route a trail a little bit. I guess one of the things that we should do to start is define what writing is, which again seems so basic but like that's kind of what i like about this topic is like getting at those basic assumptions so what is writing if you had to define um, it right now
1: recording ideas or thoughts on a medium that uh, another human can observe
0: that's a good start there's a specific aspect of it that uh, you didn't capture in that one, which is okay, this is not a thing that you've spent lots of time on, but um, specifically for it to be language, or sorry, specifically for it to be writing, another person needs to be able to re- reproduce the exact words that you spoke or put down on the page in the same way that you said them. So for to, to kind of clarify that, before writing what you get is something known as proto writing and the thing that distinguishes proto writing from actual writing is that you can record meaning with proto writing but you can't record actual language and what I mean by that is think about very very old cave paintings where you've got yep. like a couple of guys with spears chasing down a mastodon or whatever
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's very clear what this person is telling you about right there was a hunt. They killed a mastodon, and they're very proud of it. And frankly, good for them. Um, I, I don't blame them. I yeah. would be proud too. But
1: what... yeah, it seems quaint until you actually picture a mastodon and a stick and thinking, "How am I going to kill this?"
0: You did all that with a sharpened stick. Good on you. I, I don't blame you for yep. making some ochre drawings or whatever. Um, yep. But the point is that like you don't have a literal story of what happened in the words spoken by. The person who recorded all of that, right? What you can do with writing is that I can say something, somebody can write it down, they can hand the writing to you, and you can verbally reproduce exactly what I said, as long as it was written down correctly. So there is this very specific tie to language in a a, a completely uh, reproducible
1: format. And that is what would differentiate writing from drawing?
0: We're writing from proto writing as well, because proto writing can be, um, a lot harder to, uh, distinguish. So, um, I don't know, let's say that you and I are, are going to engage in a business transaction, right? And we're spending, we're, we're sending messages back and forth, but we don't trust the messenger to repeat our words specifically. So I'm going to, I want to sell you three cows. I'm going to take a piece of clay uh, and pat it into sort of like the shape of like a briquette in a barbecue. And I'm going to draw three cows into it. Like literally just draw into, into a three cows and I'm going to bake that. And so it can't be changed. Right. Uh, and I'm going to hand it to a messenger and he's going to take it to you. You're going to look at it and go, okay, well Adam's looking for three cows and you're going to take a similar briquette and you're going to draw in, I don't know, 20 little urns. And, uh, you and I know enough that um, I I know that those are are, uh, uh, a measure of wheat and you want these 20 measures of wheat for those three cows. And the messenger brings that back to me and I go, okay, well, that seems reasonable. And then we do our business transaction, we move on. That's not necessarily drawing specifically because you and I may actually be using like a shorthand version of the drawing. I might I might not be drawing like a recognizable cow, but you know, there might be like a triangle with like two pointy things coming off the top that kind of looks like a cow head that you and I both because know. I cow. Yeah, yeah. We we both know it means cow. And, you know, the the yeah. little urn that you drew, I know it means wheat, even though it's not specifically, you know, explicitly wheat. And we're communicating. It's
1: the it's the, the thing you put the wheat in. It's the, yeah. the wheat hole.
0: Yeah, exactly. Sure. Why not? So we're communicating, uh, and we understand each other, and there is a component of um, communication, nonverbal communication happening here, but it's not language, because I haven't written down, hi Dan, hope you're well, looking for three cows today, how'd things go with the doctor the other day, I don't know, and and handing that off and, and, and taking it over to you and you can read it and see the exact words that I said. So that's the distinction. Yeah. Okay. First, The first thing you'll notice about that is that it feels a little hinky like
1: as a definition
0: not necessarily as a definition but as a line at which we're basically going like well the stuff about the wheat and the cow transaction that's not real writing so we really can't count that as like you know we we can sort of look at it look at it as like physical evidence of a transaction but it's not actually like recording language
1: and right it's just concepts are communicated
0: and it's kind of like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, that feels a little bit restrictive. And in a certain way, uh, it, it feels a little bit like that line we talked about earlier, right? Where it's like, well, if it's written digitally, it counts. But if it's written, you know, if it's typewritten, it doesn't count. Getting from proto writing to writing is, is a little more revolutionary in terms of like the ability to communicate from one person to another. But like, there is still that like level of exclusion that happens there right away in, in very early history that, you know, It's it's uh, it's intriguing to me that we we look at certain writing systems and kind of argue over like well Is this proto writing or is this real writing? And as soon as it gets downgraded to proto writing, it's kind of like wow This is just it's not as good
1: Yeah, that feels like there's a lot of risks there in uh, in ethnocentrism and and Mm -hmm. you know The limitations of one's own culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely so originally For a very long time, we thought that writing had a single source. Uh, This is the monogenesis theory. Um, Basically, that the concept of writing language uh, developed in Sumer in Mesopotamia around 3200 BCE. So, well over 5,000 years ago. And the Sumerians basically got to a size of civilization where conducting everything verbally became too much to manage and they needed some sort of system for uh tracking cataloging uh censuses things like that yeah
1: was it for taxes
0: oh yeah a hundred percent a hundred percent you know it's bureaucratic
1: um it feels like taxes would be the first thing where they would develop this kind of advanced technology is so that they could extract the tax
0: Yeah, I mean, to the point that one of the writing systems we'll talk about later is for a society that's under something called the palace system, which is a pre-currency system based on still collecting, uh, you know, uh, portions of crops and things like that and centralizing them in in palaces. So, yeah, writing comes before money (laughs) in the tax game. This, This system invented in Sumer is, as far as we can tell... And see, this is the other thing about physical evidence: is we mostly find it on baked clay tablets, usually fragments, um, or sometimes scratched into stone or uh, uh, metal. Um, but this uh, this this text developed in Sumer is something called uh, cuneiform, uh, which means uh, wedge shaped, basically. And it was written by taking uh, soft clay and using a sort of wedge shaped stylus to like press in. Um, They they look like little wedge-shaped lines. So every line starts off thin at one end and thick at the other. And it's a very distinctive uh, writing style that comes out of it. For a lot of stuff, they would just take soft clay, write down what they needed to write down. I don't know, say they have to count a lot of whatevers for taxes. It doesn't matter. It's all agricultural, right? There's just too many chickens to hold in your head or whatever. You're gonna press all of those into the 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 tablet to keep track. Once you're done, you're gonna find the number, and then if you don't need to keep a record of it for whatever reason, you can just squish all the clay together and scrape it into a flat piece again and reuse it. So it's reusable. Right. For more important things, they would then bake the clay so that they would have a permanent record of it, and then it was unchangeable, which is actually kind of a clever system of of uh, keeping track of things. It's a uh, low waste. Yeah.
1: I mean, it reminds me of modern cryptographic systems. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, a little bit. I won't bit. get too into that, but there, there is an element there of a, of a one-way transformation to, to bake something into being uh, unalterable.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, so for a long time, it's believed that it spreads from Sumer to other places. We no longer think that that's quite the case in terms of the, the development of writing. We think it's been invented... Um, in four discrete places at four discrete times in history. Um, so beyond Mesopotamia, we also have uh, invention in Egypt uh, at approximately the same time. There is, um, there was a, there's, there's a long debate over whether Egyptian writing is descended from uh, Sumerian writing or whether it's independently uh, generated. That debate is still ongoing, but there's a pretty healthy amount of uh, evidence to suggest that it's actually independent. Um, then in China around 1200 BCE, so again, much later, um, you have the, the invention of, of what will become the, the current writing system actually in, in China over many, many iterations, right? Um, there are, uh, proto writings found in China going back much, much longer, but again, especially because of the, um, ideographic nature of, of Chinese script, there's, massive debate like we're not going to get into a massive debate over at what point chinese writing becomes writing and not proto writing it's it's even worse than what we're talking about in the the fertile crescent
1: uh and then was the sumerian cuneiform an alphabet based language
0: no it was a i mean it began as something called logographic which means that each symbol represented an entire word um, okay. which is a little bit of a clumsy way of doing it, but keep in mind that we're coming from that system that I, that you and I talked about those, those tablets that I described the, the little, uh, um, briquettes that is Sumerian in nature. That's how they started writing as in these little, well, it would look like a briquette cause you would form it in between the palms of your hand. Right. And so you get that kind of yeah, like, yeah. you know, humped shape to it and then you would write on those so that so that system that we talked about you know having a a drawing for a cow or a drawing for wheat or whatever that system writ large over the the language as a whole means that each little symbol means an entire word it's a clumsy way of writing but it is technically writing because you can reproduce uh, every single word that a person says right um as sumerian writing moves forward it's going to morph into a syllabic and syllabic writing means that each character is a uh, sound of a word. The uh, difference between this and an alphabet is that each in an alphabet each uh, uh, sound is a phoneme. So it's the difference, well I mean this this will help you specifically, I don't know how much of the, the general audience it would, it would help, but the, um, the, the, the kana symbol sets in Japanese, those would be syllabics, because each one is a sound. Uh, or like an entire syllable, not just the sound itself. So um, there's a symbol for ka, and there's a symbol for ko, and those are two completely separate things. Whereas in the alphabet, you would have a K and an A, or a K and an O, and put them together. So syllabics tend to work a little bit better in languages with limited numbers of syllables spoken. But, you know, these, these various, like, very specific things about the symbol sets are they They tend to kind of end up where they need to end up based on the language. That generally seems to be how that gets pushed forward.
1: Are we meaning early written language is uh, mostly driven by the the spoken language that it is encoding? And is it the case that as language development progressed, the there became more of a feedback loop between the written and the spoken language?
0: Um, I I would say that's true. I think what really starts transforming languages as they're written down is the, 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 you know, when, when, when writing is developed, it's very closely tied to the language as spoken in that moment in time, but language is very fluid. Um, this is, this is no mystery to, uh, to anyone that's tried to study Shakespeare, for example, in school, Shakespeare was not that long ago. It's certainly not 5,000 years ago. And yet you can see like significant differences in the way things are, are grammar forms, in words that are used. Things don't rhyme anymore the way that they were supposed to back then. Like there's, there's real changes in, in time. And language tends to be fluid and descriptive, right? When you set up a language specifically for a language, or sorry, when you set up a writing system specifically for a language, and then that language begins to change, once you're past that like logographic stage where each symbol is an entire word all of a sudden you kind of have to find ways to make the writing system continue to fit a changing language and that's what seems to drive innovation in written language as far as i can tell by the way earlier i forgot to mention that fourth place that uh, writing has come up independently in the world which is that uh about 900 or so bce uh, in Mesoamerica, the Olmec people developed a writing system, oh. which will become like the Mayan writing system eventually, or the Incan writing system. Well, I mean, uh, forefather of all of those, right? But it it was developed uh, independently in uh, Central America. Just thought I'd throw that in while I, while I could still remember it. Yeah. All of this earliest writing is like very bureaucratic. It's record keeping. It's very like practical. It's what we might call like functional literacy. It's stuff that people need to go about their day-to-day, do their jobs, things like that. Taxes, as you put it. Yeah. It's going to be a full thousand years before the earliest uh, examples of literature that we can find. Writing is a practical experience for the longest time, and it's very much divorced from what we would consider art or culture.
1: Um, No one could see how something as bland as lines scratched into a clay tablet could record something as grandiose as a play being performed or a great orator uh, relating a story yeah
0: that's that's more or less it i mean i think the uh, experience of storytelling for the vast majority of human history is a it's a social one and there's a lot more to it than necessarily just the words that are being spoken there are um, you know, th- there there are other aspects to it. There's the uh, the tone of voice. There's things like that. Like how do you how do you you know how do you accurately write down uh, someone's tone of voice or or laughter or you know other exclamations, right? And that's something, if you think about it, is a limitation with writing that we still struggle with today. How many times a week do you see an article that's something along the lines of like how to um, you know accurately contain or, or convey tone? In business emails or something along those lines, right? And part of that is that writing doesn't convey tone of voice. It doesn't, you know, it's it's it, it is uh, functionally limiting in in some of those regards to to uh, to convey language. So yeah, for a long time, literature or the uh, the the forerunners of literature it wouldn't make any sense to put them down in writing. They're just, you're, you're losing too much. Uh, you don't have the bandwidth for the entire experience.
1: I note parallels somewhat shifty and hard to define, but I see parallels between that and modern technology and the, some of the dim view that we got to see of computers and, and things that were being made on computers and early YouTube compared to real media in television and movies, how, Oh sure, you know people are using the internet to do stuff, but it's not it's not real life. Mm -hmm. That's that's this little fake hobby thing that people are doing, and you still see that with new systems being created. TikTok, I think TikTok was discounted quite a bit uh, early on, based on the the early users of the platform Mm -hmm. um, not being you know fitting a traditional mold of of people. Uh, with influence and uh impact but the last few years have shown that you know that's a that's a flawed assumption about any growing platform like that
0: yeah absolutely it, it's 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 interesting whatever the whatever the kids are doing is uh is never worth uh time and attention until all of a sudden it's too big to ignore right having that uh parallel with you know something something as foundational as writing is really interesting
1: yeah still a thousand years is a long time to go without writing fanfic or anything.
0: All I said was that we don't have the records of it. Um, you know one Should thing that you? i one one thing that I will note about all of these writing systems is that they are in like permanent materials. doesn't mean that writing hasn't been around longer because there are lots of things that people write on that are disposable, right like we'll absolutely find it's very common to find like you would break a pot for example and then you would scratch writing into it for essentially the same reason as you know our parents might have like a notepad beside the phone just for quick notes on stuff nothing important just need to note it down real quick
1: it's just have a a crate of pots next to the telephone that you can smash against the wall
0: just already broken pots but yeah other than that exactly what it is
1: Um, there's, there's an internet video in that i like it
0: it's interesting because the form of the written characters is very much defined by the medium that it's being written on, to the point where cuneiform actually doesn't work that well scratched into stone because of the the need to press a wedge into clay. That distinctive shape takes a distinctive shaped uh, uh, stylus to make it work properly. In uh, Contrast things that are written into stone or into metal really well tend to have very very straight lines because you can't really do a curve Or like lines of varying thickness when you're carving us carving something right think of you know Scratching something into copper or another soft metal. It's just not really gonna work to try and do a curve It's gonna look bad So they would tend towards characters that are entirely straight lines Egyptian characters are going to be very curved because of their, their unique position on the Nile, giving them access to papyrus, which is a type of reed that can very easily be turned into a scroll that can be, then be written on in ink. And when you're writing with ink and uh, a brush on papyrus, or uh, you know, a, a stylus in ink or whatever, whatever, it's much easier to make curves. In fact, it's a little bit easier to make curves and, uh, than, than it is perfectly straight lines. So you'll see a lot more curved characters in Egyptian writing. Around We, we talked about this before with, with Sumerian writing. Around 2600 BCE or so, that logographic uh, shift takes place. The language has, has changed enough that the uh, strictly logographic uh, nature of the, of the written language is no longer accurately capturing the spoken language. And what happens is you get that transfer to phonemes, to uh, syllables, characters that And generally how you see that is that like characters that mean a specific word would get shortened down to just that, that, you know, the beginning of that word sort of thing. Um, Oh, in a lot of ways, it would be the equivalent of like you and I making up uh, an an alphabet based all on animals, right? Like A is for anteater and B is for bear and drawing little pictures of them. And now the, the first letter is, is that, that animal, right? You're shortening them down and trying to extrapolate the meaning out of them, in order to use them in more situations. Right. The next big development is once again this clash between writing systems and different language trying to fit its way in. Around 1800 BCE or so, workers from uh, around the Mediterranean, culturally Semitic, so from Syria or somewhere in that region, were working in Egypt in fairly large numbers. This was pretty common at the time. Like, I mean, there's there's a lot more cross Mediterranean trade than you would necessarily expect for that long ago. In Egypt, the hieroglyphics are very much restricted to um, the highest classes and to uh, religious ceremony. So becoming a scribe is like a very like exclusive club. And this is sort of what we talked about earlier with the exclusivity of the technology, right? Because there's almost a mystical quality uh, culturally speaking, to the written word, in that you can preserve someone's speech beyond death, for example, or across space or time. And that scene is very, very powerful, and also not something that's just for everybody. So frequently used in religious uh, um, applications, this is why you have massive monuments covered in hieroglyphics that are talking about how great kings are, or book of the dead within uh egyptian tombs and things like that but you're not going to see a lot of as you put it fanfic just written in actual hieroglyphics
1: right do we have a sense of whether the people in the upper classes would have been literate or was this something Restricted just to the to the scribe class, the cleric class, as it were.
0: That's a great question. My impression of it is that you would—I'm not sure how much, uh—you know, for example, a pharaoh would be literate, or how much he would just have a scribe to record things and read things back to him. Um, that's a great question. That's really interesting. That
1: would, that would be my guess. I, I, the the general impression I have of of the plutocrat society from back that long ago is that they would lean towards that that being a thing for the mystical scribe people and and not something for the god kings themselves but I have basically nothing to base that on other than a, a feeling
0: I wouldn't be surprised if you were correct there I'll, I'll take a look into it and I'll add something into the notes and, and see if I can find a little more information but I would suspect that you're right on that uh, that would be my my instinct as well all of that being said, remember that, especially in the, the Sumerian context, you know, writing is very like functional, like it's for doing stuff. It's for, you know, writing down the measurements of the pyramids so you can line up that fourth corner when you build it out, right? Like it's, it's got a, a day-to-day function to it. And so these Semitic workers in Egypt started modifying hieroglyphics uh, into a phoneme system that they could then use to write their own languages. Um, based on uh, common phonemes from uh, spoken Egyptian. And this results in a system that's uh, now somewhat, at least, cross-cultural, that people speaking multiple languages can use the same system to reproduce the same sounds.
1: Were they speaking common Egyptian at the time, or were they just taking the, the sounds and using it for their own language?
0: they would have been able to speak Egyptian, but they're doing the latter. They're taking those sounds and making sure that they can write their own language within those sounds. Okay. But the point is that they would also be able to re- uh, reproduce Egyptian spoken language with these sounds as well. So it's it's now becoming divorced from the language that's being spoken and becoming a uh, uh, Essentially, a sound recording device, right? Like it's reproducing spoken noises that, if you put them in the right order, words will come back out that uh, replicate something that somebody has has said out loud or wants said out loud in the future,
1: or at least as as to to the extent that those sounds are common between the languages.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I mean this this is this is close to uh, an alphabet now, so. You can get fairly granular on it. It's technically what's known as an abjad. Um, this, is a, this is a relatively new name in linguistics or in, in, in writing. Uh, it's based on the four, first four characters in uh, Arabic. Um, an abjad is a system that, unlike an alphabet, only shows consonants. It doesn't write down vowels. It's used for oh. systems. Yeah, it's used for systems that um the I think I think it's important to remember that as people with English as their first language, our language is too big. It's much, much too big. There are far too many words. Most of these languages getting
1: that, pretty ridiculous. We sh- we should probably have a meeting about this.
0: We should definitely talk it over. Most of these languages have a much, much smaller vocabulary, I suppose, um, and you, you can kind of, what am I trying to say? You can kind of work your way through them a little bit easier. There are, there are less overlaps in words that might look similar when written down under the system. So if you have, you know, uh, the letters C and then T, you don't have to worry about whether it's like cat or cut. Um, you know what word that's supposed to be in general?
1: It's it's the sound that comes between those letters. Mm-hmm. And that's only one word.
0: Yeah, that's right. Abjads still exist. Uh, in fact, certain forms of uh, Arabic written today are still technically abjads rather than uh, alphabets. Um, it depends on where you, where you're writing it. There is also um, modifications of abjads that involve not explicitly listing vowels as separate letters. But using diacritical marks to mark which uh, which vowel sound follows a consonant,
1: so still treating them as a as an adornment to the to the written language.
0: Yeah, so in that
1: as opposed to its own written element.
0: Yeah, so in that cat or cut example, it would still be written ct, but like there's one mark for you know there's one mark on the c that shows that the next letter should be an a, or next sound should be an a, I should say, and there's another mark that shows shows that the next sound should be a u. We're getting into the nitty-gritty on this stuff. It's still interesting to see how, you know, these things kind of come up. Um, this written system uh, made up by these, uh, these Semitic workers is going to uh, become what's known as Phoenician, and Phoenician is going to spread across the entire Mediterranean as kind of a lingua franca. People are writing things down in Phoenician so that even if they don't understand a language, they would be able to reproduce the sounds using a common uh, written system.
1: Is this the era in which uh, the shibboleth becomes a thing?
0: Uh, I think that would be much later. Um, why do you ask?
1: Well, this—I mean—I'm reminded of it because of the lack of writing down the uh, the vowel sounds. My, under, my recollection is that uh, vowel sounds were important in the pronunciation of the shibboleth, and and the approach was generally to write it down and and use that. Uh, hold it up to the people uh, coming across the border and demand that they uh, pronounce the word you're holding up
0: yeah i, I think that is still much later the shibboleth is is hebrew yes. so so uh hebrew writing is actually a descendant of phoenician and still is okay. in a lot of uh or, or was at that time in a lot of cases uh an abjad rather than an alphabet uh you don't actually get written vowels until you get to the greek alphabet in the early ninth oh, century wow. or so yeah uh ninth century BCE, okay. i should say so the Greek alphabet also descends from Phoenician, and there are lots of charts and graphs out there that you can go and look up to see the evolution of uh, letters, essentially from uh, Phoenician into Greek, into the Latin alphabet, and e- even from like starting before the Phoenician alphabet. You can see the uh, the glyphs that they would have originally been using, uh, or or our best guesses at what the glyphs were that they were using uh, before it even became like a phonetic alphabet but a little hard to describe on an audio medium, so we're not going to really try. The Greek alphabet is functionally the uh, source of every writing system uh, in the Western world at this point. From Greek it spreads obviously across the entire Mediterranean world, The Roman alphabet is learned by the Romans from the Etruscans in the 5th century BCE. The Etruscans were using a modified Greek alphabet. That's where you get the Latin alphabet that English is written in today. A lot of Latin inscriptions are still perfectly readable, perfectly recognizable uh, to this day. Surprisingly enough, Latin and Latin writing stops being that important after the fall of Rome for a very long time the fall of the Western Roman Empire, I should say, Um, for a very long time after that, Latin is very, very important, specifically within the church for specifically writing uh, uh, or copying the Bible, while anything to do with uh, literary tradition, even legal tradition to some extent, is all going to be done in Greek or in Persian, in the, the Byzantine Empire or in the Arabic world. You know the uh the Arabic script is developed about four hundred c e um it's descended through like three or four iterations from Aramaic, which as we talked about uh essentially hebrew um which as we talked about is also descended from phoenician so there's a there's a common root between the Latin alphabet and uh Arabic if you go back far enough, but for a it, long time
1: diverge significantly though
0: oh of course yeah, absolutely. But that's what, you know, thousands of years of writing gets you, right?
1: Um, Indeed, to one one element there, are most of those early alphabets uh, written left to right? Or did the early alphabets get written right to left and it was the Greek line that diverged?
0: It varies wildly, um, right to left, left to right, top to bottom. Um, you know, the, the Greek, uh, I believe Greek is where you see a standardization for the most part of left to right, although, and I may be remembering incorrectly here. I believe there are early examples of Greek inscriptions that run, I forget the exact term for it, but they'll write a line left to right, and then they'll go down a line and they'll write right to left going back the other way. And this is to help with flow of reading right? So you don't have to like jump back to the start of the next line. You just move down and you read backwards the other way.
1: It sounds like an engineer's solution to this.
0: I I think it's I think it makes a lot more sense when you consider the fact that until we're not entirely sure but about the 17th century sometime people basically only read aloud.
1: Oh true. It's hard to keep that in mind.
0: It is hard to keep that in mind because we do it almost entirely silently, right? And to the point where, like, if somebody's reading out loud, like, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a stigma about it, right? Like, it'd be kind of weird to like come across somebody in the park reading a book aloud to themselves. That feels strange.
1: At this point, that's more strange than someone just walking down the street talking to themselves, because in the latter case, you just assume that they're on a phone or something.
0: Yeah, that's. You're not wrong. I hadn't considered that, but yeah, that's true. Um, no, we put a yeah.
1: book in front of them, and now they're a weirdo.
0: <laughs> for most, and this is this is where I wanted to like really stress that link between like written words and spoken words, right? Like there is that like it's a it's a recording device for human speech. Um, most of the time, when you're reading, you're reading in in human history, you're reading aloud, and often to other people, but not necessarily. Even if you're alone, you're reading aloud. You're hearing words out loud to an extent where you know it sort of feels like certain aspects of literacy as we understand them aren't entirely there it's almost like you're making the noises that it says to make on the page and whatever comes out of your mouth is the language that's happening
1: Um, like an indirection in the process
0: yeah I mean and and I say like I know that sounds a little crazy but like there's other weird little things about like the the fact that like reversing uh, back and forth between left to right and right to left works at all um, kind of suggests that it's a very like one thing at a time sort of process to me um, likewise yeah. likewise the space is invented in like something like the sixth century like people just oh. didn't put spaces in between things it was just a flow yeah. of letters and and that would be a, that would, it feels like that would be a nightmare to read now right
1: i mean to, with the caveat of the heavily biased perspective of people who grew up with spaces yeah oh of course yeah no that seems impossible
0: that goes without saying but like those 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 modifications a lot of them are things that feel like they're they're there to facilitate silent reading in some in some aspects and i mean a lot of that is is looking back on the whole process right but but you know the the separation of reading and speaking is a relatively modern thing. Uh, we don't have a we don't have an exact thing uh, an exact date on it, but um, yeah, we're we're a hundred percent certain that this is a, a very very modern thing. Before that, people just read aloud.
1: Actually, I've I was wondering about that. I've certainly read about it online, but it like we have a extreme certainty that that is the case historically. That, yeah, that it seems so hard to conceive of that. I, I have a lot of skepticism.
0: Um, again, I don't have specifics. I can look up the the specifics, but I, I uh, one of the pieces of evidence, and I mean there are scads of evidence. Uh, linguists are very certain on this, but one of the pieces of evidence wow. I saw was um, it was either a, a, an emperor or a religious figure. I'm going to say fourth century CE. Um, people were writing about him and how weird it was that whenever he read, he didn't speak out loud. Like
1: c- catty memos to each other. about what a weirdo this guy and this scribe in the, the department is.
0: I mean, he's no, this is, this is an important person that's doing this. So it's done with like a bit of reverence and awe. It's like, Oh, he's, he's understanding the words in his heart only and stuff like that. Because you don't, you don't write bad stuff about rich people back then. That's, that's suicide. Oh, I see
1: okay so it's, it's a magic trick he's he's able to perform this trick
0: yeah he's understanding it inside his mind without saying it out loud it's like he's got this direct connection to the writing and and this is this is presented as extremely strange
1: yeah it was, was it considered an, an ability yeah for him like a, like this it, it gave him not powers as it were but like this this was such an uncommon thing that it gave him an advantage
0: that's, that's the way it seemed to be presented. It was, you know, it it led, lent itself to like a life of contemplation sort of type thing. The point of this all being though, that like, you don't write about how weird it is. Like, I, I'm never going to, you know, meet somebody and they'll be like, hey, do you know Dan? And I'll be like, yeah, that guy reads without saying anything. Like, why would I ever say that? Right. Unless it's, it's, it's extremely notable. Like it has to be very, very uh, unusual to even bother commenting on it. Um right. anyways there's lots of other evidence, but that was one that really struck me
1: um, and is that that's something that was the case in in all four of those places where writing developed that's a great question I, we don't no, i'm we, asking for a lot i know
0: <laughs> yeah no 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 i I have no idea um obviously our our best understanding of this is where we have the most evidence um and and we just kind of have a lot more evidence of uh you know from the 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 western tradition as far as yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to say about necessarily, you know, for example, like the Chinese tradition, um, whether or not silent reading is any more or, or less uh, uh, common there. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question, though. Um, what else is interesting about... Yeah, we, we talked about how Latin kind of falls out of favor, except in the church. One thing I found really interesting about that period is that um, I always assumed that, like, because monks are always copying out Bibles... Uh, that the monks were almost exclusively literate that's actually not the case a lot of bibles during the middle ages are actually copied by monks who are illiterate but copying the symbols from one page to another and like making it match visually really yeah seems like a bad way to do it
1: (laughs) it does seem like a bad way to do that it's, I'm going to guess no, but is illumination a product of that to any extent? The the desire for monks to uh, beautify the the thing that they're copying by adding elaborate ornate uh, motifs to to starting characters or or the edges of the pages, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I don't I don't know that it's necessarily a direct uh, consequence of that. Illumination is. Something I I, I would like to look more into when I have some time. I know to a certain extent it's a trend kind of run amok. Like there was this trend of like making the first letter bigger uh, just to indicate the beginning of a a passage. And then that kept getting more and more exaggerated over time. And so it's kind of like a trend outdoing itself to a certain extent. Um, There is also the fact that... uh, Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, why not? There is also the fact that owning a book... Is extraordinarily expensive in this era. Like you're talking about, like for an entire Bible to be copied out, uh, you're talking about one person's work for about a year. It's incredibly wow. labor intensive, which is why you have monks who are illiterate doing this, right? This is a form of of uh, uh, meditation through work, essentially. Yeah, you don't have people who are are literate spending all their time not reading other things, I suppose.
1: Yeah, they, they are better employed keeping tax records.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, in the ninth century, uh, the Bulgarian Tsar, uh, Simeon I, commissioned St. Cyril to develop a new script for the Slavs under his rule, because they had their own writing, and that's clearly heathen, and they needed to be converted. So this is where huh. Cyrillic comes from. Oh, it's a combination of the Greek alphabet and uh, a few extra characters were retained from that Slavic alphabet they were using uh, for sounds that basically just didn't exist in Greek, which if you've heard any Slavic languages, you will believe exist. Yep. (laughs) Um, what else has been okay. really notable in the development? Of, like, that's the thing. I'm trying not to be like completely uh, comprehensive here. In about the year 500, the Codex is developed. Um, a Codex is just the form that a book takes, right? Bound together pages that are written on both sides with pages that can be turned. Because before that, virtually everything was on scrolls. Um, scrolls right. can only be so long. They're hard to store. They're fragile. Um and they're kind of a pain in the butt to keep organized. So somebody went, why don't we just kind of bind them all together into a book shape? Game changer.
1: It's I mean, it is. It is is this the scroll form is it likely to be descended just from from the papyrus reeds being the original source of the paper material? Essentially,
0: yeah. Um, you're, you're looking at everything being written on papyrus until papyrus becomes so valuable that they start exporting all their papyrus and they start writing on uh, parchment or vellum, which is essentially very thin leather. And both of those things can, you know, they basically take more or less the form of a scroll. And uh, right. yeah, you're just following form at that point. Okay. Paper is invented in uh, China, possibly as early as uh, the first century CE. But number one, we're talking about like fairly fragile rice paper uh, at the beginning. And number two, it's not going to make its way into Europe for quite some time after that.
1: I was going to say when the codex was developed, what kind of paper was in use for that purpose?
0: Yeah, So, so a codex would almost certainly be vellum. Um, which is uh, okay. specifically sheep's uh, leather. But yeah, that's that's going to be the, the vast majority of it. Again, keep in mind that books are like extreme luxury items at this point. If they're not being used for like religious purposes, there better be a very good reason for uh, commissioning a book. This isn't the sort of thing where, you know, people don't own books. Like the vast majority of people just don't have any books. They cannot afford it. Um, it it's It's not it's 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 unthinkably expensive for the vast majority of people so to you know when you're kind of looking at it going like man an all other book that seems a little extra like well yeah but like so is the act of having a, a single person spend an entire year writing out your book by hand
1: yeah so and even without the value imparted by that it you can see how just the material would be very expensive to manufacture yeah and that the disparity between what a luxury that was then and how commonplace paper and the ability to bind a book is now—like it's just such a vast gulf in how we treat it and how commonplace it is now—I'm I'm reminded of more recent gulfs like that, where, as far as I understand, Napoleon uh, didn't have gold flatware that he used to serve his imperial dinner guests he used the much more expensive and rare aluminum yeah yeah and that was only like 200 years ago
0: yeah yeah things like that are funny i i mean it, it's all scarcity stuff right like it's 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 yeah. where, where status meets scarcity i suppose um but the thing that the thing that i, I think is, is particularly interesting about books for me is like the scarcity is someone's life like it's time um, yeah. it, it's not, it's not, can you find enough of this stuff? Like leather isn't hard to find. It's a bit of a pain to work into a, a form that you can use for a page, but you know, you can find leather. That's, it's fine. The, the twine to bind it together. That's f- easy to have a man sit there for a year with one copy in front of him and another copy that he's writing out himself and then add in the illumination as you alluded to and add in the, you know, all of this other stuff. It's... It's a real power move. Yeah. So in the 13th century CE you finally get me- uh, mechanized wood pulp paper manufacturing. First run out of like paper mills that are like water mills. Like a paper mill is is called such because it's it's being run by like a water mill when they first uh when they first developed this. And the invention of wood pulp right. paper is again, a game changer. The availability of materials to write on at a more affordable price and a more durable product to write on is already a pretty big bump to the availability of writing to more and more people. Then you get to 1451 and uh, Johannes Gutenberg invents the printing press, which I hope we all know by this point is not the first printing press by any means, but He's got a number of interesting things going for him. Uh, he's a he's a goldsmith, by the way, by trade. And if you ever read anything about him, you realize that he's a crazy shady person. He's always alluding to like secret like business deals he's got going on that he's never specific about. Really interesting guy. Really, yeah. Um, the things that he brings to the idea of the printing press are number one, the idea of movable type. So this idea that you can set a page with with you know uh, individual letter blocks um print stuff off of it and then take the blocks back out and rearrange them to make a new page um huge before this they had like wood block printing where you would basically carve uh backwards an entire page into a block of wood and you could print it on paper or you could print it on fabric if it's a design of some sort um that already existed but like extremely limiting
1: yeah it's uh it does not sound like it would be a common thing to be able to carve that kind of thing backwards. No. It's <laughs> a, a, easy to find people to do that, at least.
0: Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, he found a formula for casting the specific letter punches that is so effective that it's still viable today for printing presses. <laughs> which is really wild yeah he found a combination of uh it's like lead and bitumen and a couple other metals he found an alloy that is uh very low temperature to melt which makes it easy to cast new letters when needed but when it hardens it's very hard and very sharp so it, it uh has a very like clear uh imprint and we've just wow. kind of i mean you know at least with that printing method Maybe there's something better out there, but we kind of don't need it. This still works well enough. Number three, he invented a oil-based ink that left a clear and legible mark on the paper. Before this, most inks that people were trying to use to print uh, were water-based, and they tended to bleed uh, through the paper. He developed a process that allowed him to wet the paper uh, slightly, and then use an oil-based ink that would because the paper was slightly damp, get like a nice clear line of demarcation between printed and non-printed. And then as it dried, it would dry into the paper exactly where it's, where it stayed uh, as the the paper dried from the water uh, as well. I'm not sure if I'm describing that well enough, but this, this ink that he developed was, was a, a major hurdle. People had tried similar things and it just kind of bleeds everywhere on the paper. It doesn't give a nice clear imprint And yeah, this is um, quite possibly the most important uh, invention of the last thousand years. It uh, skyrockets the availability of printed material to the average person, as well as uh, extremely wealthy people. It democratizes print to some extent. For one of Gutenberg's Bibles, which is mainly what he was printing at the beginning, uh, it would cost a clerk about three years' salary to buy one. This This was an impressive drop in price from what they were paying before um for a again, yeah. handwritten uh copy. So this this is this is all of a sudden extremely affordable. And I mean honestly most people are just looking for one book anyways uh at this point in time which is which is the Bible. Um you know it it becomes like a family heirloom kind of thing. Um Yeah. There are still something like 50 or so Gutenberg Bibles in existence which is kind of interesting. Their photos are re- readily available and honestly for being like the first printed books pretty reasonable looking like they, they look all right.
1: No printed misalignment, no, no, uh, honestly, toner streaks.
0: honestly, probably less problems than my laser printer today. Um, yeah. <laughs> there had been some movable type printing, uh, in China before this, some even reaching as early as the, uh, 1200s. But this is where that, that, uh, advantage of the Latin alphabet comes into play over, Um, the several thousand character set of uh, Chinese script, Gutenberg could get away with about 24 letters uh, that he had to make. Not thousands. It's it's a significantly easier endeavor to set a a page of script that way. Um, And
1: it's not just thousands, but thousands times however many instances of that ideogram you want to be able to use on a single page.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's quite the endeavor to print uh those characters um using the like the movable type system. You know, th- this is there there's a direct line between the the invention of the printing press and the the reformation which in turn has massive ramifications for for European history that I've gone over in in other places. Um you know, when the reformation is occurring 70 years later, Martin Luther has 300,000 pamphlets printed per year about his ideas and distributed throughout uh uh, the holy roman empire 300,000 in a year and i mean yeah it's not a bible but like imagine imagine people having to write out by hand 300,000 handbills it's not possible that
1: number is several orders of magnitude larger than i would have guessed that's crazy
0: yeah, no. The, the, once once these take off, they're they're printing like crazy. There's a direct line from this to essentially the mass media era. You get into printing uh, newspapers, uh, you get into printing magazines with the Industrial Revolution and the uh, invention of of mass printing using steam powered machines. That jumps uh, astronomically, and all of a sudden, there's reasons for people outside of the upper class to be literate. You know, somebody in twelve hundred. You went to church and you listened to what the priest had to say and you went home and you farmed and realistically there isn't a whole lot of writing you needed to do to accomplish a very complete life for entertainment's sake for uh civic engagement's sake by the time you get into the 19th century literacy starts climbing rapidly and by the time you get to 1950 or so uh 55 of the global population is is literate that continues to climb between 5 and 10% every decade. Uh afterwards, yeah, printing is is it's 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 a it's a massive change to the availability of the written word to the average person. Up until the printing press, writing is an elite activity or it's a holy activity. Uh either way it's exclusive. After that, it becomes something that is open to anyone in some capacity.
1: You've touched on this with the reformation, but in general would you say that the printing press enabled, but by virtue of increasing literacy, but also just the medium, would you say it increased the rate at which ideas are disseminated in all regards?
0: Absolutely. No question in my mind.
1: So it's there's a lot of things going on in the second half of the millennium, but it sure seems like Western Europe started to have revolutions at a faster pace social and economic revolutions and it it doesn't seem like it would be an accident that that happened after the printing press
0: No, no accident whatsoever. No, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's absolutely related I mean, of course, it's not the only factor, but you know, the dissemination of ideas is important in in all of these You know in all of these aspects, right? Whether you're talking about uh, religious change political change social change economic change all of those require people to know what's going on you know the 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 century or two before the printing press you know i've talked on other episodes about various uh, uh heresies that are put down by the church right and part of the reason that they're unsuccessful and luther is successful is the printing press itself um yeah. there is you know when when you have to copy out things by hand there are a finite number of those things in the world that can be hunted down and destroyed and it will be an effective uh, suppression tactic, once you've got a printing press, that isn't really the case anymore. It can be done, but it's significantly harder.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Book burning seems like a, a scary thing, but the reality is that's a much harder problem for sensors than it used to be.
0: Yeah. Oh, Absolutely uh tell you what let's take a break there because we've been going a while and uh when we come back i want to talk about a couple of uh times in history or or specific case studies in history about writing that i honestly i was gonna find a theme i just thought they were kind of neat and i want to talk to you about them
1: okay sounds good all right back
0: on hi 101 here with dan mcginnis hello and we've been talking about writing in a very broad sort of context. So, yeah, I I, I think that in, in a number of ways, it's kind of weird that uh, the last thing we talk about is in 1450 or so. And I can kind of say that, like, in a lot of ways, that's basically brought writing up to the, the modern era um yeah. there's there's been innovations since then right like i mean there's there's been uh very specific problems solved and then abandoned and then you know changed and in and out of fashion since then uh you know things like various uh types of hand you know the the book hand being able to write in extremely legible uh letters versus black letter which is a very like germanic uh, script versus uh, italics which was a very specifically italian script things like the invention of braille in 1824 as being a specifically solution specifically uh designed for the blind to be able to read words the same way anyone else could it's just not printed on a piece of paper it's uh it's the little you know divots on a paper or 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 uh you know you can see them everywhere these days for accessibility reasons, right? Things like uh, shorthand being used to uh, take notes very quickly. And then, I, I, I mean, shorthand's a funny one, right? Like, I think I'm pretty, I'm 95% sure my mom learned how to do shorthand, like in school. Mm, yeah. I don't know that anyone does shorthand for any reason anymore. You know, like, it's the just... only
1: thing I can think is uh, uh, legal. Secretaries, that's not the right word. Stenographers, thank you. Stenographers, and even then, they, they use modern computerized things. So,
0: yeah, they have like a I... sp- specific typing system mechanism yeah. thing, um, to, to assist in that. Like, they're not writing shorthand anymore. Um, yeah. you know, it, it's, things like that have come up and, and, and disappeared over, over the years, but in a lot of ways, it's really been a story of expanding uh, who can write, uh, who is writing and, and sort of what writing is used for. We, we move away. And and this is where I wanted to relate it back a little bit to history, right? Like we move away from only very important people, uh, writing and being written about. And at the same time, history being about basically only these very important, very wealthy people, you move into more, uh, middle-class people and then lower-class people being able to read and write. And reading and writing about their own experiences, and as a, a bit of a reaction to that, history as a discipline becoming more interested in all aspects of society rather than you know simply who happens to be the king at the time, right? And um, getting a fuller picture of what life might be like for anyone at a certain point in time, rather than simply the the, the wealthiest and most uh, privileged parts of society.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That being said, we we have a pretty big problem with writing that I think should concern us in the, in the modern era, which is that we have frequently lost the ability to read certain types of writing, which I don't know. Sometimes I think about it a little too hard and I I just, a very dark cloud descends over me (laughs) when I think about the idea of, because writing has such like a, a connotation of permanence to it, right? You write something down, it'd be, uh, anybody could read it at any time, and like, nope, that's that's not how this stuff works. And interestingly enough, of those kind of four places that we talked about language kind of developing, right? We can only really read two of them now. That mm, that's that's not true. We can read three of them now, but ancient Chinese is really tricky. It's its own kind of discipline. Olmec, we can't read yet, even though we know it's writing. We don't know what it says, which is really? kind of a weird spot to be in. Yeah. And if you look at, rather than looking at kind of the, the places that writing developed, if you look at the places that societies developed, um, the main three cradles being, you know, Egypt, Mesopotamia, and uh, the Indus Valley in, in, in India, for a very long time, Mesopotamian traditions were the only ones we could read. To this day, we cannot read anything that came out of that Indus Valley civilization. Now, we don't have a huge body of work to draw from, but the Indus script was developed about 3500 BCE, so even a little bit older than uh, Sumerian. It was in use until 1900 BCE, so you're talking about 2500 years. Sorry, 1500 years. BCE math is weird sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't read a single bit of the writing that they left behind. That's a major point in our world history, and we've just gotten no access to it.
1: I think that might be a hard concept for people to get. Can you... Talk at all about why we can't understand it? Sure. So,
0: I mean, the writing systems that have descended from Indus script have changed so much over time that they have no uh, resemblance whatsoever to this script that I'm talking about here. So, we have a very small corpus, which means that we only have so many examples of this writing. As far as we can tell, it is writing, or it does appear to be from everything we can you know, from, from from all information we have about it, but we don't know what it says. Um, none of the characters are uh, related to anything else that we know as writing. There aren't enough of them to figure it out. We don't know what language was being spoken and therefore represented by it. There's no point at which we can latch on to this writing and derive any meaning from it at which point it's no longer fulfilling its, its purpose as writing.
1: This seems like a good point to bring up the Rosetta Stone.
0: I was thinking about talking about the Rosetta Stone a little bit. Before I get into the Rosetta Stone, though, I want to point out that while we figured out the Rosetta Stone, I mean, we're still kind of figuring out the Rosetta Stone, but while we figured out hieroglyphics, we also couldn't read Sumerian up until about the same point in time in history as the Rosetta Stone. Really? So that was missing for us as well.
1: That's a big one.
0: It's a big one. Um, The Rosetta Stone, though, is important for a number of reasons. First being that Egypt is uh, one of the oldest civilizations. Point two being the sheer number of samples that we have of hieroglyphics. Um, it, it It was a massive hole in our understanding of history, not being able to read that stuff. And again, I want to relate that back to like this study of history and its focus on the written word where like there is an alternate history here where we cannot read hieroglyphics and we cannot read Sumerian and we don't understand a lot of things about these societies. And it, yeah, it worries me a little bit. It weirds me out a little bit. Mm. Anyways, let's talk about the Rosetta Stone. So, Way back in the 4th century BCE, Egypt was under control of the Persian Empire. By about 330 BCE, the Persians had been conquered by Alexander the Great, and he split up the Persian Empire and and basically all of his spoils between uh, seven generals, one of which being a a general named Ptolemy, uh, who was given the satrap of Egypt. He established himself as a pharaoh after the death of uh, Alexander the Great. And the Ptolemaic dynasty is an entirely Greek-speaking dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs. So while they ruled Egypt, they spoke Greek. This seems like a lot of background, but you'll see where we're going with all of this.
1: How long before this were there pharaohs who were of the, the ancient tradition of Egyptian pharaohs who spoke ancient Egyptian?
0: Yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, the Egyptian language uh, changes quite a bit over over the various dynasties, but essentially that that Persian Empire uh, or that control under the Persian Empire was the last time that uh, ethnically Egyptian pharaohs ruled Egypt. Uh, oh,
1: it was right then? Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's That's kind of the most notable thing about the Ptolemaic dynasty is it's the first time that... And, and I mean, obviously, under the Persians, there's, you know... There's some reporting back kind of stuff going on, but at least the leaders are still uh, uh, Egyptian. One of Ptolemy's descendants, Ptolemy V, uh, when he was uh, first crowned, I suppose, in 196 BCE, it was kind of a turbulent time, and he basically gave a bunch of donations to a bunch of temples to try and uh, secure their support politically. The temple's basically installed him as a divine leader, basically proclaimed him as a god. This is super normal in Egyptian politics. Don't worry too much about it. It happened all the time. On the event of this ascendancy, I guess, uh, the temples commissioned a number of monuments with proclamations about his new godhood. Because of the political situation at the time, uh, declaration was written three ways. One was in hieroglyphics. Known as the language of the gods, because this is still, they're still using essentially old Egyptian hieroglyphics for religious rites. Now, most Egyptians can't necessarily read hieroglyphics fluently at this point. They're using a different type of script called Demotic. Demotic is kind of an everyday writing, they would call it the language of documents, which is a phonetic. uh, uh, script derived from hieroglyphics but very different from hieroglyphics so you know linguists today can relate it back but it's not you know it's not immediately apparent what the relationship is between the two okay and then because the pharaoh himself is greek and can't read egyptian in either form uh the proclamation is listed in greek as well uh because you know he wants to read his own declaration right yeah. um tell me the fifth has like an unremarkable but very turbulent reign he lives for another i think 20 years or so it doesn't really matter his dynasty ends with the death of cleopatra uh, cleopatra the seventh if we're being specific but nobody everybody knows which cleopatra you're talking about right when Hmm. cleopatra dies egypt becomes a roman province with that conversion to a roman territory you know latin becomes a lot more important uh, Demotic begins to be phased out as a writing system. Hieroglyphics start being phased out as a writing system. Um, Demotic kind of transforms into a, a newer form of writing known as Coptic, um, mm. which is similar but still different enough. Point being that there's there's significant societal and, ling- and linguistic changes at this point in time. In 380 CE, Emperor Theodosius declares Christianity the official uh, religion of Rome. And after 70 years or so of back and forth fighting with the pagans and various concessions to old religions and prohibitions of old religions and a lot of massacres, uh, in 451 CE, Emperor Marcian decrees the closure of all pagan temples on pain of death uh, across the Roman Empire. So the obvious effect of this is uh, you know within Rome, like your your temples to uh, Mars or to Jupiter or whatever are, are being closed down. all the mystery Greek religions are being shut down. but this also extends to uh, the traditional Egyptian religions. Um, all of those temples are closed uh, as a result. The last recorded date, or the last dated use, I should say, of hieroglyphics that we know for sure, are an inscription made on the 24th of August, 394 CE, praising the Egyptian god Mandulus.
1: Wow. The last... Much later than I was aware.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, they're, they're used quite a bit through the, the Roman period yet. The last dated use of Demotic is the 12th of December, 452 CE. Uh, this simply says, Petis, son of Pedasiris. And we don't know who Patisse is other than that he wrote some graffiti in Demotic in 452. And dated it? Uh, they were able to date it from uh, archaeological evidence, from what I understand.
1: Oh, okay. Wasn't a diary entry?
0: No, it's it's scrawled on a wall. Um, <laughs> it's graffiti. Yeah, graffiti is a significant portion of human writing has been graffiti. Um, yep. Yeah, it's it's an interesting art form. Yeah, so like I said, after that Coptic alphabet is put in place, it's mostly the Greek alphabet with a couple elements of Demotic. The uh, kind
1: of like Cyrillic.
0: Um, yes, sort conceptually? of conceptually. They're they're more like cousins than than anything else. They're of a they're of a similar uh, pedigree, I suppose. But yeah, you're right in that in that the uh, the remnants of Demotic are for things that aren't necessarily pronounceable by Greek letters.
1: An interesting parallel, at least.
0: Yeah, for sure. Coptic is spoken basically third century or so onward until the uh, Muslim conquest of of Egypt uh, in six thirty nine to six forty six uh, CE. After which uh, Arabic is is spoken by the vast majority of the population. Coptic is still used until relatively recently, actually, for Coptic Christian uh, religious rites, but only in a religious context. Right. In 1798, we're going to jump way ahead, uh, okay. Napoleon, who we talked about briefly before. It's the middle of the uh, Revolutionary Wars, the French Revolutionary Wars. Uh, he's just defeated Italy. Uh, his commanders say, come back to Paris. And uh, Napoleon says, actually, I think I'm going to go to Egypt. And does Naturally. so. And does so. <laughs> uh, there's a bunch of battles there with the British. We don't need to get into the whole story, but this coincides with like a massive rush on uh egyptian artifacts and in and on 15th of july 1799 some french soldiers notice a black uh stone slab about three foot eight by two foot six covered in glyphs this is outside the city of Rashid, which they were calling rosetta at the time They figure, hey, this looks important, but there's still a war going on with the British. In 1801, this stone gets turned over to the British, who take it back to London, make a whole bunch of copies, and send it out to everyone. Because what they notice on this stone is that it's it's divided into three pieces. At the top are hieroglyphics, exactly like you would find on any other Egyptian monument. They're very familiar with them at this point. Can't read them at all. Have no idea what they're saying. They're saying. Uh, at the bottom is ancient greek and they're very good at reading ancient greek because uh so much uh biblical text is written in ancient greek it's been kept up as something that honestly like a lot of people would just learn in the course of a like a liberal education in the 19th century so basically everyone could read it functionally at least maybe not well but they could read it
1: especially by this point because they're all really into fetishizing the classics
0: oh 100 percent And then in the middle is this text that they do not know what it is necessarily. And it's very quickly realized that likely what's happening here is that it is the same message written in three different ways. And they're hoping that this is the key to uh, deciphering Egyptian hieroglyphics, which they cannot read. The Greek is uh, completely translated by 1803 by a French guy, Hubert Pascal Amelion about the same time, there's this Swedish scholar and he's been working on this weird proto-Coptic text that's been turning up on some uh, some papyrus in in Egypt for a while now, trying to figure out what exactly is going on there. He's sent a copy of the the stone and recognizes that it's the exact same text that he's been working on for some time. He starts poking around with it and manages to find a couple of instances where names that he can read in Greek are also in this demotic text. this is this is what he's been working on. He realizes it's it's this interim text. He doesn't really get any further than that, but the fact that he could recognize Greek names written in demotic using you know uh, uh, principles from Coptic text showed that uh, proved that it is exactly the same message three different times, right. Now, as a sidebar, the messages aren't actually, like, word-for-word translations. They're not identical. They're close-ish, which is going to cause some issues for translation. Um, yeah. But they're, they're close enough that they're going to get things started, right? Now, the biggest problem with Demotic uh, that this uh, Swedish scholar, uh, Johan David uh, Ackerblad, uh, the biggest problem that he's run into with Demotic is that he's assuming that it's an alphabet, which it's not. It is a combination of ideographic and phonetic. And it turns out that uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics are written in a very similar uh, sense. There's about a thousand characters. A number of them are ideographic. They're, they're complete words or uh, representations of concepts, and then you have modifiers coming after them. But yeah, that that kind of slows him down. He doesn't really get any further. But at this point in the early 19th century, this Rosetta Stone is like circulating throughout Europe. Every single classical uh, scholar is taking a look at it, trying to figure out what's going on. They also kind of want the glory of being the one to crack hieroglyphics. Yeah. In 1811, Sylvester de Sacy, uh, who is uh, an orientalist scholar. Had a discussion with a with a Chinese student about uh, you know Chinese language uh, uh, um, or written language principles, and was thinking about the stone and realized that foreign names might be listed in hieroglyphics phonetically rather than symbolically, similar mm. to the way that you know modern Chinese would list uh, non Chinese words phonetically using uh, Chinese uh, characters. It's a bit of a breakthrough uh he also combines this with an earlier theory dating to before the Rosetta Stone that proper names in hieroglyphics are contained in cartouches um you've likely seen this in uh hieroglyphics before there's sort of a an oblong box like with rounded corners around names when it's written in hieroglyphics okay um, and they weren't sure of that but um Sassiz starts looking for instances of cartouches in the hieroglyphic uh, section, and trying to relate it to the names in the Greek section, because there are a number of proper Greek names in the, uh, in, in the uh, Greek section. He corresponds with a scholar named Thomas Young from the Royal Society in London, and Young manages to finally find the name Ptolemy written in the hieroglyphics in a cartouche.
1: Okay. Notices. awfully lucky that they specifically put boxes around the names.
0: Right? So, he notices some similarities in construction to Demotic, specifically that combination of uh, uh, syllables and uh, ideograms, and goes to work on that. He, again, corresponds with other uh, scholars. They get to work deciphering Demotic and get a pretty good handle on it. Uh, Another French scholar, uh, Jean-Francois Champollion, in 1814, finally manages to construct an alphabet out of phonetic hieroglyphs. He's about half right, which is pretty good, all things considered. He also manages to confirm the foundations of grammar within written hieroglyphics and uses the information that he's pulled together to start confirming against other examples of hieroglyphics, either on monuments or on recovered papyri. And things just kind of progress from there. There isn't really like an aha moment where they just like crack the case and now they can read every hieroglyphic that never quite comes. However, in fits and starts over the past 200 years, we have gotten progressively better and better at reading hieroglyphics and a more and more clear understanding of not only what they say in terms of like meaning, but also how to read them aloud, what the Egyptian
1: language sounds like. Because of instances like the name boxes?
0: That's right. So you can find the name Ptolemy and how it's written out in phonetic hieroglyphs. You can find the name Cleopatra. Uh, they found the name Cleopatra on another monument and how it's written out in phonetic hieroglyphs. And you can take that and uh, extrapolate from there. All of this because right. some French soldiers dug a big black rock out of the ground and said, hey, look, this looks important.
1: Yeah, and in this case, didn't destroy it.
0: We are now able to read inscriptions back to 3200 BCE because these guys dug the right rock out. Wow. And it's, it's insane. I mean, it's not as though there weren't any other efforts at trying to read it uh, beforehand. They just weren't getting anywhere because they had really nothing to go off of. Um, same yeah. with Demotic. They were making progress on Demotic, but it wasn't really... Uh, working out very well because they didn't have anything to compare it to. Now, Demotic likely would have come along because of the uh, comparisons to Coptic eventually, but the stone really hurried things along. These uh, discoveries in uh, hieroglyphs also allowed uh, scholars working at the same time on uh, cuneiform to confirm a number of Uh, breakthroughs with that writing system because they found instances of names written in both cuneiform and hieroglyphics. Uh, Xerxes being a a prominent one. Okay. So this rock basically allowed us to read the uh, foundational writing systems of two ancient civilizations. And it is wildly lucky. It is wildly lucky. We have no right to be able to do this.
1: No. And then it became the basis for late 90s computer translation software
0: people are still using that one man i don't know why but um yeah i mean the, the rosetta stone is a as a as a um as a key to uh understanding across boundaries is is definitely a cultural touchstone at this point but what they actually managed to do off of it is wild
1: um, i'm reminded of other things like like e equals mc squared most people of course can't explain what einstein uh, realized or discovered about the universe but it was such a big deal to the community of experts studying that field that mm-hmm. just like shook them and shook the world uh, that they were working in to a degree that everyone knows it now even though they may not actually understand much about the details yeah. seems like the same thing
0: yeah that's a good parallel i i, I think that works well all of this being said, like, like, I, like I said earlier, you know, with the Hindu script and things like that, the Olmec script, we, we don't understand a lot of writing systems. Um, famously, there's one called Linear A. Between about 3000 BCE and about 1450 BCE, there was a culture uh, that existed on the island of Crete, off the coast of Greece. Uh, they're called the Minoans, uh, named after mm-hmm. the myth of King Minos, uh, the yes. guy who, you know, had the, had the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's an interesting civilization, by the way, because we know a lot about them archaeologically. We know that bulls were sacred to them, for example, which makes the Minotaur uh, myth that much much more interesting. It's the oldest European civilization we have record for. Uh, really? We know, yeah, we know that they, uh, and I mean, we're we're using a definition of civilization that's a little bit, you know, a little bit narrow, but that's okay. Sure, sure. They had intercultural trade with Egypt, with Persia. They had agriculture, they had metallurgy, uh, they had a significant copper trade going, artwork, pottery, all of this stuff was incredibly advanced. And they had a writing system called Linear A. Before that they had a writing system uh, known as Minoan Hieroglyphics, which is completely unrelated to any other writing system, at least going backwards. uh, And we can't read a single bit of it. We have over 1400 specimens of Linear A. Now, you, you could print them all out on about two printed pages if you're printing them off on a printer, but this isn't like, no. I know that seems disappointing. This is also like a lot of writing uh, compared to what archaeologists are normally working with. You know, it's not, as though, it's not as though you can go to civilizations that are 4,000 years old and just find scads of books, right? It's, it's hard to find good specimens. We can't, we can't read it. We have no idea what it says, even though we have all these specimens, There are certain words that we can make out, but like, we don't know what those words mean. Um, And this goes back to that whole relationship to the written word, right? Uh, Or or the spoken word. Linear A eventually becomes linear B and linear B uh, along with uh, Phoenician uh, eventually becomes the, the Greek alphabet. So like we have some relationships with linear B in terms of like what certain characters are supposed to look like, but we have no sense of what the Minoan language sounded like. Um, okay. Again, we have these markings and we just have no sense of the language that they are supposed to be conveying.
1: Um, when did that civilization decline?
0: Well, in 1450, uh, there was some sort of catastrophe. We're not entirely sure what. Maybe a big earthquake, maybe a volcanic eruption. We don't know exactly, because we can't write, read okay. any of their writing. <laughs> <laughs> um between about 1400 and 1100 BCE the the i mean the population dropped by like 70% really quickly the population scattered the palace at uh, actually the palace at Canossus was relatively unharmed a lot of the other palaces on the island were destroyed in this particular period we don't know exactly what happened but by about 1100 BCE there was they, they were significantly diminished, and the, the civilization essentially rolls into uh, early Greek uh, culture. Okay, but we don't know exactly what happened to them, and and at the rate we're going right now, unless we find a, a, a you know a Rosetta Stone for Linear B, we're not going to. I don't know. It kind of it kind of messes with my head a little bit. Like I said earlier, there was there, there's a significant amount of scripts known as Vinca script found in Romania that if we could prove that it was actually writing. Uh, and not just proto-writing would push writing back to 5,500 BCE, 7,500 oh, wow. years ago, but we can't read a bit of it, and we just kind of never <laughs> will, probably. I don't know. It's it's bizarre.
1: Barring su- su- surprising archaeological discovery,
0: yeah, essentially. I was thinking about when I when I started planning this one out. I was like, ah, we should probably talk about Dead Sea Scrolls, right? I think the main thing to say about the Dead Sea Scrolls, other than it's a really interesting archaeological find, uh, for those that don't know, some Bedouin shepherds in 1947 stumbled across some caves near the Dead Sea that uh, through, again, extreme luck, um, happened to contain sealed jars that contained parchment with ancient versions of the the Hebrew uh, Bible written on them. <laughs> Well over 2000, well, between 200 BCE and, and uh, 100 CE. Um, yeah, they just happened to find these things, you know, they took it to a market and an antiques dealer bought them off of them for the equivalent of $325 today, you know, just one of the most oh, significant no. uh, uh, religious archaeological finds of the 20th
1: century. <laughs> um, how, uh, how quickly was it realized that they were significant?
0: oh the the like the massive archaeological teams were out there by 1948 so like the next year uh oh wow most of the finds made between like 1948 and 1956 although they're still finding caves i think the last one they found was in 2017 oh wow um so yeah between all of them there's about 972 manuscripts uh spread over thousands of fragments you know they they have broken apart over time but just like even just like the environment of the place uh, managing to preserve it the way that they did is is extraordinarily good luck. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing to me was how little change there had been in the Torah over all those years. Previously, the oldest example we had was about the 10th century CE. So this pushed us back a thousand years. Most of the differences that they've found in the Dead Sea Scrolls for, for books that are still considered part of the... the the corpus right like part of the actual uh hebrew religious text because some of them had been changed or abandoned over the years but of the ones that still remain most of the mistakes were like spelling errors like wow just they wrote it a little bit wrong a couple of them came down to like small like linguistic changes just like linguistic shift over the years but even then they were minor i i was reading there was there was an entire chapter of psalms i believe it was that had 17 errors total over Hmm over thousands of years um it was remarkable and uh i I thought that was i thought that was really interesting i was expecting to find more of a and here's how you know here are all the differences they found there aren't a lot it's really interesting how effective they were
1: religious texts seem like an effective preservation instrument in writing in general certainly not in every case Mm -hmm. but in general because there is a desire to maintain a strong consistency and link to the past within a religion and within a belief system, yeah. and and change in in something that is a sacred text is uh, is uh, something that is generally not welcomed very easily in most religions, from what I can tell.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of like you know, New Testament changes over over the centuries. Like there have been uh, changes and they've tracked some of these back, but they're, they're few and far between. And the changes that you'll find are uh, usually, and and I'm not sure if this, in, in a way, this makes me feel better. They're changes that are clearly very deliberate and you can tell who did them and why. (laughs) <laughs> and um, it's it's easy to yeah. figure out what they were and why they happened. Um, the level of accuracy in terms of like just copying from copy to copy is is relatively good. Even when you have you know those illiterate monks uh, copying them back and forth, it seems to go pretty well. It seems pretty self correcting for the most part. Um, as you said, yeah, there's, there's not
1: not a lot of drift.
0: Exactly, yeah, and I mean the, the New Testament is is by far the manuscript that we have the most copies of in history tens of thousands uh, of copies over the years and and yeah relatively relatively accurate like they've they've worked out relatively well and in a lot of ways people will point to this kind of thing to you know as as proof positive that you know writing works this is the best way to keep things recorded right but one thing i've been reading a lot about recently is oral tradition and the uh relative strengths and merits of societies that use oral tradition because the whole point of writing is is to kind of maintain information and language uh, across time and space as we talked about but as we also mentioned at the beginning this isn't how the vast majority of human information is is communicated even in modern times like i i you know it's it's tough now because you know we have text messages and emails and stuff like that we're writing constantly but you know uh, think about like family stories and how many of them have been written down and handed to you versus told to you by family members right um things like uh you know trying to get recipes out of family members or uh, you know um a lot of those things get transferred by speaking and by repetition of speaking and sometimes yeah there's a little bit of drift but the stories themselves remain the same um and and usually core elements of them stay the same and uh, you know, at first, I think there's a, a tendency to go like, ah, oral transmission, like there's too much, there's too much uh, room for error there, right? Like a lot of times it gets com- uh, compared to like a game of of telephone, like the kids game. Yep. The problem with that comparison is that like telephone is kind of intentionally obtuse, right? Like it's it's sort of designed, like the, the point of the game is for there to be errors and then it's funny, right? It's not important information that people are making a concerted effort to remember, It's not uh, important information that's being passed down with purpose. People's memories are good. People's memories of things that have happened to them are good. And people's memories of important things are are relatively good. Now, people are bad at forming short-term memories. If we're talking about, you know, a crime just happened and can you give me a description of the subject, people's memories are atrocious at that. But societies with oral traditions have developed uh, mnemonic systems to... Passed down knowledge with virtually no drift, very similar to the way that we're talking about with these religious texts. A lot of uh, important teachings are transmitted with uh, rhymes. A lot of them are spoken with multiple pe- people together so that they're helping each other remember what happened. Uh, a lot of them are done collaboratively with other people, building on top of each other to make sure that it goes the same direction. Even like rhyming schemes that are built into them. So Uh, so that if you miss a word, you immediately know that something was missed because now the rhyme is off uh, or the meter is off. Uh, These are all things that oral tradition societies have adopted to help keep information accurate. And this is very different from like oral history where you like, you know, you get that school project to go and like, you know, and ask a grandparent what the depression was like or whatever that's that's not really a problem with history like that's that's very well accepted oral tradition is is struggling to find much acceptance among historians. that being said, like you know i I'm, I'm speaking in very general terms in terms of accuracy, so to give you an idea of of the type of accuracy that we're talking about here there's a uh, there's a band of uh, Aboriginal people in Australia that have oral traditions saying that when they were first uh, you know when they first came to the island, there were a series of uh, volcanic explosions. They're fairly certain that these stories are linked to explosions that occurred between 34 and 40,000 years ago that they have archaeological evidence for and these are passed down in their oh. stories. Yeah. Wow. Like we're not we're not talking about a little bit here. These the, the the relationship between societies that have no writing and their oral traditions is very different than the way that we think about writing here because Part of that relationship between writing and history is rooted in the Enlightenment in, in Europe, right? And another significant aspect of the Enlightenment in Europe that doesn't always get enough attention is that there's a significant number of ideas within the Enlightenment specifically regarding relationships between culture, uh, economic systems, things like that, that are responses to Europe's contact with the New World in really kind of gross ways when you get to the heart of it yeah for example the relationship between land ownership and written records right there are a lot Mm. of instances of europeans claiming ownership over land in north america a continent where there was no written system uh before uh european contact there are land claims that are made basically on the basis of no one had a claim to this land before because nothing was on paper Um, Yeah, that's bad. That's really bad. (laughs) It's it's it. But it it sets up that dichotomy I was talking about between civilized and uncivilized, written and unwritten. Right. There's this argument being made that these aren't people, sometimes period, these aren't people at all. Uh, Sometimes that these aren't the same caliber of people, that they don't deserve uh, the responsibility of owning territory because they haven't developed writing, which is. Again, we're we're talking about a a technology that, yeah, while it's been instrumental to um, many other types of development, also isn't necessarily, you know, if you can find other ways around it, there are other ways of uh, communicating uh, ideas over space and time, right? And to use that to remove people from their own land is, is, that's insidious. I don't like that at all. In... 1997, there was a uh, legal case in British Columbia in Canada between the province of British Columbia and the Delgamuuk people. British Columbia has a really interesting situation with, uh, with indigenous land rights in that uh, even the very questionable treaty system that covers most of Canada uh, doesn't exist in British Columbia. It is truly unceded territory. There's no real question about it. Uh, the province was still asserting ownership over Delgamuk, uh land. And basically the courts challenged the Delgamuuk people to come up with some sort of written proof that they owned it. Oh. Not having any, uh, the Delgamuuk sent elders to court where they told stories of their ownership of the land. In that society, storytelling isn't just about the people telling it, but you would tell stories in certain places, linking the stories to physical locations. They told those stories in court, and after significant court battle, uh, it was actually uh, accepted in 1997 that uh, oral tradition in absentia of written proof could be admissible in Canadian court. It was a massive breakthrough for Indigenous people in Canada.
1: I, I did not expect that to be the end of the story.
0: Oh, that's not the end of the story. Uh,
1: well, the, the conclusion of that section in the court, that's surprising.
0: In the last couple of years, there's been a massive standoff in British Columbia on Wet'suwet'en territory. Uh, this is the same territory that the courts said in 1997 belonged unequivocally to the indigenous people. Uh, that's the same territory that there is currently a uh, police standoff on. So uh, we we still have uh, a ways to go. Uh, that's what I meant by it's not quite over. However, oh yeah, I, I bring this up. I bring this up mostly because it's a uh, it, it's a really important step I think in broadening our conception of what proof involves. What uh, in a way knowledge involves epistemology, right? How do we know something is true? How do we know this land belonged to these people? It's not written down are we willing to accept an unbroken chain of oral tradition as as proof? Should historians accept that as proof? You know, time and time again, over the last several decades, um, there have been these very surprised headlines coming out that are basically along the, along the lines of like archaeologists surprised to find that, you know, indigenous people's stories about themselves turn out to be true. And it's kind of like... <laughs> How many times you need to see that before maybe we should consider listening to these people tell us about themselves?
1: Well what you just outlined about oral tradition. I mean, again, I come at a lot of things from a computing perspective. Like you you described protocols and error correcting codes Mm -hmm. and mechanisms that we use in defining computer communication that are technologies. So you that's an effective way to lay out a case that Oral tradition is a competing, competing or complementary technology to to writing as a technology.
0: And for a lot of history, remember that a thousand years before literature is is developed, people would argue that oral tradition would be the superior com- uh, 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 communication method. That something is lost in writing. There, you know, and, and there's there's other there's other ways that people have recorded information about themselves that kind of gets. Dismissed. You know, the, the Inca had a, a system called quipu. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever come across it, but you know, uh, more than 500 years ago, they would they would have these series of strings, and they would knot in certain places along the strings. Uh, and there's some argument over whether or not it's proto-writing or writing, but record keeping was done using these knots in strings as uh, mnemonics for information is that writing is in writing, you know, in characters on a piece of paper? No. Is this recording information about people again, you know, communicating ideas? Yeah. Should we be considering that a little bit more seriously than we have in the past? I kind of feel like yes. So all of this is to say that, you know, we're we're in an era now where Literally, everybody is writing more about themselves and about their world than any other time in history. And our ability to collect information about history of this era is going to be really interesting because the amount of data to be able to that you're going to be able to scrape from the Internet is going to be just insane. Yeah, The granularity of it is, you know, people will write dissertation on the the, the number of people eating tacos every Tuesday versus Wednesday because Taco Tuesday is a thing because they can pull that information from social media. Like, it's wild.
1: I think an interesting future direction will somewhat mirror some of the sciences when you look at a lot of the cutting-edge things in biology right now. You picture it being looking through a microscope, but a lot of cutting-edge biology is happening with biologists sitting in front of a computer Mm -hmm. because they're developing software that does tremendous scale of analysis. I can see future historians doing the same thing for this era, where it's too much data for an historian to be looking through themselves, so they are developing software that does the analysis for them and brings things to the forefront that they can then analyze.
0: Yeah, it's already happening in sociology. It won't be long for history, too. Um, You know, we've also developed other ways of recording things uh, via technology. There's photographs, there's, uh, you know, audio recording, there's visual recording. Those are all ways of, of, you know, leaving things for posterity as well. Those are all perfectly admissible as, you know, historical record. But again... That's more and more available to each one of us at any given time, anytime after, you know, 2010 or so, we all have a pretty decent camera on us at all time, recording device on us at all time. We all have the ability to see playback all the time. Um, it's, it's a little scary to be honest with you. Um, but what it's done to history is like broaden the idea of who history is about. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that while we're doing that, while we're, we're in this moment of like expanding our idea of who is important enough to have history written about them, I think it's also important to look at much older history and reevaluate whether or not we have captured all the people we want to write history about uh, going back as well. because uh, just because it has been done uh, extensively at this point doesn't mean that it couldn't be uh, in the future. Uh, we 're no longer just writing hagiographies we 're no longer trying to tell stories about how to be a better person um History has become about trying to find out uh you know what life is like trying to find uh larger trends and patterns and to some extent it's been about uh you know especially in 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 Western tradition trying to expand our scope beyond the uh the western experience and and I think part of that is that we 're going to need to be uh a little bit comfortable with the limitations that writing puts on us uh as a preferred source of that information um mm-hmm. this isn't like a like i said this isn't like a takedown of writing necessarily i i think it's just a uh a, a means of reevaluating it as a piece of technology that allows us to do a specific thing and that it deserves to be treated as such and that you know uh treating other things as such is, is probably just as important to the discipline moving forward. Well said. I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Yeah. Um, this was a fun uh, fun uh, discussion. I enjoyed this one. I I know it's a little bit non-traditional for this show, but, um, you know, I, I think that uh, once in a while it's good to step back and kind of examine what uh, the fundamentals are a little bit. And uh, this was a good opportunity to do that.
1: Definitely. Thanks for the chat. Thank
0: you. The technology of writing has been one of the most important and transformative innovations in human history, and it has allowed the transfer of information at an exponential rate. It will always form the core of the discipline of history, but as with other technologies, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Literacy has been restricted functionally or intentionally, sources have been biased, and writing systems have been lost. As with so many of our core tools, writing deserves careful consideration. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I say that the space is invented in about the 6th century CE. That's partially true. Uh, It's somewhere between the 6th and 8th centuries, we're not entirely sure, but it's also only part of the story. Earlier scripts used other types of word dividers for convenience, dots or dashes. Uh, It was actually the invention of the vowel in Greek writing that caused something called continuous writing to come into fashion. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash HI101podcast, on Twitter at HI101podcast, or by email at contact at HI101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash HI101 to make a monthly pledge or paypal.me slash HI101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 was a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blusky, and this has been HI101. hi 101